0: Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 112, Revelation, the final judgment. And in this episode, we will look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 15, which for John is his opportunity to describe the death of death, the ultimate defeat of Satan, and the location in which he will be placed right alongside the false prophet and the beast. And then we will see a throne and we will see books being opened. And based upon where you find your deeds or where you find your name will determine where in fact you will be for all eternity. And so for John, this is an exciting highlight point for us. It kind of wraps up. a a look at judgment that we have seen various times sprinkled throughout the book of Revelation already, but this one is the climactic one, hence the final judgment. And so we'll have a chance to walk through these verses here. I hope you'll receive encouragement from the episode. And so let's just dive right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened He was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, as I shared in the introduction, this is John's symbolic and imaginative way of describing what the final judgment is going to be like. The reason I say symbolic and imaginative is because if you think back to last week's episode where we were looking at chains and angel and a pit and bound to Satan being bound for a thousand years you know we we aren't dealing here with physical realities you know Satan is not a a physical being he's a spiritual being and so even when you begin to talk in physical terms to describe spiritual reality um, we don't have categories for that outside of something like symbolism or apocalyptic language but it's it's important for you to understand that, that John has several Old Testament um, ideas in mind when he's describing this passage. And he has in mind really um, books like Daniel and even a book like Ezekiel. And so from, from verse 11 of our passage, we're, we're told that he sees someone on a great white throne and from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Well, if if you go back in the book of Daniel to Daniel chapter two, when Daniel is recounting this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and he's offering an explanation of it, um, and even the the dream that Nebuchadnezzar himself has, um, we're told that this stone that um, was made by no human hand came and it struck this mount, it struck this statue that had been erected and um daniel chapter two verse thirty five tells us that the wind carried the, the the chaff away so that not a trace of them could be found, but then the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth and so daniel or daniel 's description of this stone cut out by no human hand that destroys these kingdoms that are built coming from Babylon. We see that it's the Lord's kingdom. Jesus is that stone that the builders rejected. Jesus is that cornerstone. Jesus is that stone that was cut out by no human hand, which demolishes and destroys the kingdoms of this world. And according to Daniel 2.35, not a trace of them could be found. Well, this is the same idea now only ramped up into a final judgment category. It is from the Lord's presence, from the one seated on the throne, as we saw from Revelation chapter four, this is how God is described in the book of Revelation as the one seated on the throne, the one seated on the throne. All of the action is coming from the one seated on the throne, but is typically carried out by other agents. But here it says that from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Now, we're going to see in chapter 21 that a new heaven and a new earth are going to be created. And the the final two chapters of the Bible are filled with glorious imagery of what the new creation is truly going to be like. Well, in order to make room for the new creation, the old creation in all of its um, glory, I guess, if, if you will, will need to be brought to an end. And so throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen that from the throne come you know flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And we've seen in chapter 6 of Revelation, for example, we're told in verse 14 that the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So big portions of land are being removed from their place. And we're told that that people are terrified from the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And they shout out for the great day of of their wrath has come and who can stand. Well, then several chapters later in chapter 8, we're told that the angel took his censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then in chapter 11, God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. And then in chapter 16, we see flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people. Now, we've talked about this several times in our podcast so far, and that is that as you go through the seals, to the trumpets, to the bulls, you have the same events being described, but with ever-increasing intensity. And each time you do, it is coming from the one seated on the throne. Judgment comes from him. This is why Paul reminds the Christians in Rome, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We do not judge. We are not the judges. The Lord alone is the judge. And even Jesus himself, when he lived, was not here to judge. He was not here to bring condemnation. He was here to bring salvation. And he awaited the Lord's judgment in resurrecting him, in raising him from the dead, was God's declaration of what God thought about Jesus' life. That's the same thing that John has just encouraged the Christians with in the first half of chapter 20 is that those faithful will be vindicated. They will be raised and they will reign with Christ for a very, very long time. And so what John is trying to get at here is that now we've, we've ramped it up. It's not just earthquake and hail and stars falling from the heavens and it's heaven and earth themselves don't have a place because something very, very big is about to go down. And so the way John really describes it is he talks about the place where the beast and the false prophet have already been thrown, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. So the devil here is ultimately being destroyed right along with death. I'm sorry, right along with the beast and the false prophet. And I I really think um, Eugene Boring has a lot of good things to say. and, And one of them is I would like to just share with you here. But he tells us that John is preparing to present before our imaginations a picture of the ultimate destruction of evil. And he needs for this scene antagonists to God who are larger than life. This Gog and Magog figure that is pulled from Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 evil must be magnified to its fullest before being destroyed forever it might also be something similar to what we would say if you're taunting someone on the basketball court or you are um you know you're 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 challenging someone to some type of a competition and you say bring bring all you've got or bring your A game you know like br- bring it all clear the bench right bring everything you have and we will have one final showdown. And yet just like we saw in chapter 11 and just like we saw several weeks ago in chapter 19, the "quote unquote last battle" isn't really a battle at all because there is no other victory than the victory that God won in the person of Jesus when he raised him from the dead. God is the lone victor. And that's the encouragement that the second half of Revelation 20 is giving to us. God alone is the victor. He's the one who will bring about ultimate hope. And so we also have a passage coming from Daniel chapter um, 7. It's a passage we've referenced numerous times. Let me just read several verses of it for you from Daniel 7 9 to 10, and verse 22. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Now that's just the end of verse nine. I did want to make a comment um, is that it says that that um, the... I'm sorry, Satan in verse seven of Revelation 20 will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Like that's the extent of the battle, quote unquote, right? And here in Daniel seven, nine, we're told that his throne was fiery flames. Verse 10 goes on. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom We again, as I said a moment ago, are preparing for chapters 21 and 22 in which we will see the kingdom come in all of its glory, the new heavens and the new earth and the people of God descending down to the earth from heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. But John will also explain that this bride coming down to to reign on the earth with Jesus is going to be like a new Jerusalem. So here in Revelation it says that the that Satan is surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Okay, well the beloved city is not Jerusalem as it is in Palestine today. The beloved city, the city of Zion, the new Jerusalem is the spiritual city of the followers of the lamb in contrast to what Revelation calls the great city which is Babylon which is destructive and is headed for destruction. But Daniel 7 paints this scene of thrones being placed, books being opened, and things being judged. And it is, in fact, a a looking forward to a time when ultimate judgment will happen. And that's the scene that's painted for us here in verses 11 to 15 of Revelation 20. John says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, we get into this discussion here toward the very end. And I think it's a good one. We have, um, we have, uh, the deeds that are being done written in the books. And then in verse 15, it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. And it's really interesting that so far in revelation, we've heard about this book of life. Um, we, we heard about it in the letter to the church in Sardis in revelation three, five, Jesus, promises them, he says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And then in the very next verse, I'm sorry, in the very next um, address to a separate church, to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says this, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. There it is again, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, in Revelation, the book of life is also called in chapter 13, the book of, of Of the Lamb's book of Life, or the Book of Life of the Lamb who was slain, is I think how it's it's worded in chapter thirteen verse eight. But here in revelation three five it says that Jesus takes our name and he secures it. He writes it in the Book of Life, which is the lamb's book of life but and then to the address to the Church in Philadelphia. It says that he also gives us his name, his father's name, and the name of his father's city, the New Jerusalem. So he takes our name and secures it. If we follow him, if we are living according to his standard, we, we are, our names are written securely in the Lamb's book of life, one of which is going to be opened on the final day. But he also gives us his name. And in that sense, we have this mutual exchange of names. And I think it's kind of what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 14 when he says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you and so there is this union relationship between the lamb's book of life and the names written there and the type of lifestyle that is that is lived out by those whose name is written in the book of life and yet what john is doing here in revelation is he's contrasting that kind of a book with a book written where the deeds will be laid bare before the one seated on the throne our deeds matter And they matter a great deal. And I do know that in in later years, um, and more recent years rather, of my life, I've, I've tried to really wrestle through this tension, the tension that's created between works being important and the things that we do actually mattering in life versus the fact that we are saved because of what Jesus has done. And so what kind of a judgment are we dealing with here? And I love, again, Eugene Boring's words. I I think it's very, very helpful. I would just rather read to you what he says than try to sum it up myself. But here are his words. Judgment functions on the basis of books that are opened in the heavenly courtroom. In accord with traditional apocalyptic imagery, books are opened in which the deeds of human beings stand recorded and people are judged by what they have done. This picture makes human freedom and human responsibility as serious as it can get. What we do matters and matters ultimately. Yet in the same scene, another book is opened, the book of grace, the Lamb's book of life. Names are written there before the creation of the world purely as a matter of God's grace. This picture takes grace with absolute seriousness. Those who are saved from the eternal second death are saved only by God's grace, not by their deeds, but by God's. In these two books are pictured the paradox of works and grace, a paradox not unfamiliar in the Pauline tradition. And he goes on to cite Ephesians 2 8 to 10, which talks about it's by grace you are saved through faith. And then in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul encourages the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in them both to will and to act according to his good purpose. So there's a clear tension here between what Jesus has done for us and therefore now what we are supposed to do in response. Boring goes on, we are ultimately responsible for what we do for it has eternal consequences. We are judged by works. God is ultimately responsible for our salvation It is his deed that saves, not ours. We are saved by grace. Propositional language will always sound paradoxical on such ultimate issues. John's pictorial language makes both statements into one picture. That is really, really helpful because in a pictorial book, and a book filled with images, and a book filled with symbols, and a book filled with colors and imaginative scenarios, there's no conflict here. Books are going to be opened, and those who hope and trust that their name has been written by the lamb himself into the lamb's book of life are going to want the reality of that lamb's presence in and through their lives to reflect Um, the kinds of deeds written that will one day receive a righteous commendation by God himself. This is not too dissimilar to some of Jesus's parables, where in the end, the master will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, right? It's not well believed, thou good and faithful servant he says, well done. It's the things that you do. In fact, Paul even refers in second Corinthians to our deeds, um, being, being made, made manifest. And then we will be able to see which things are actually revealed in several passages in the new Testament. First Corinthians being one of them speaks of things being revealed as through fire, right? From the throne comes this fire. It is a fire of righteous judgment that burns up the devil and his cohorts who are attempting to ransack the the saints. It is also a purifying fire that anyone close to the presence of the lamb and the one seated on the throne will have that unrighteousness in them burned away. It is a consuming fire as we are told in Hebrews chapter 12, but it's the kind of fire that is burning the bush that Moses witnesses in Exodus chapter three. Moses is intrigued because a bush is on fire and yet it is not consumed. This is how the fire of the Lord works. It burns up all that is not part of his true righteous ways and his true righteous kingdom, but it is a purifying fire. If you are in line with who he is and what he is after, his fire will take on purifying form to you. If you love unrighteousness and love the ways of the beast or the false prophet or or Satan himself, then that fire will be received to you as torment. And this is exactly, again, how it's described for us in verse 10. The false prophet, the beast, and Satan himself will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's contrasted again, as we saw a long time ago in the podcast, it's contrasted with the rest that the Lord provides for his own people in chapter seven. But the beast and the false prophet and those who follow them have no rest. They experience torment, it's agony, and it's suffering. That's what's ultimately going on here. And so in this final judgment, this is the day everyone has been waiting for. This is the day where the books are opened. There is no more discussion. There is no more debate. The Lord will right every wrong. He will make straight every crooked path. And those whose deeds show them as being unworthy of being in the Lord's presence with the Lord's people will be found outside the city. Here, John describes it as a place of a lake of fire. This is an image. We know in some sense, at least, that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, as well as all those who had worshipped the beast. And it says, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so there are ideas here. Um, This is a strange reality to ponder. It's, It's one of several images that John uses in Revelation to describe what judgment will be like. I, I, I do know in, a, in an evangelical world, it seems that this literal, um, physical burning lake is the primary theme. It's the primary image that takes all of the glory when people speak about the afterlife. This, this tends to sum up in the greatest measure what people believe hell is like. Um, They have taken this one image and made it the entire picture. I don't hold to that. And the reason I don't is because Revelation is a symbolic book. And there are several other ways that the book of Revelation chooses to speak about final judgment. One of which we'll see in the next several chapters is that people are still here. They are just outside the city. The city is a place that the Lord God will set up to establish for his own people, for his own kingdom, to flourish the way he always intended it to. And those who do not wish to abide by the standards of his kingdom will find themselves outside that city. They won't find themselves there. Now, that's a very different description of a place of of burning and torment forever. Do I know exactly what it will be like in the end? No, I don't. But I do not think that it is meant to be used as a threatening point for those who aren't sure whether they trust in in Jesus's truth or not. Um, Death and Hades are not physical realities. Um, Death, uh, I played some fun with death before. I think I included this on a podcast several years ago, maybe as a bonus episode, um, the day death died. Um, But I tried to use this abstract concept of death and, and have him give a first person a, account of the day that he literally was put to death. And that's what's happening here is that death is being put to death. So death has no more reign and Revelation 21 will describe for us in detail that there shall no, be no more mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Death being the ultimate culprit for every element of brokenness, sadness, sickness, disease, loss, separation, shame, guilt, you name it. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so here's where we get this image. We've got this image. Paul speaks about death ultimately being destroyed for then Jesus to put all things under his feet. Paul's speaking about this entire concept in a paragraph explaining to the Corinthian Christians about the coming resurrection and how it is rooted firmly in Jesus's resurrection. That's all John is doing here. John is embellishing and, and flowery, you know, artistically um, capturing for us some of the same ideas that Paul spoke about in his letters to the churches. And so the hope for you and for me, the hope for our world is that despite the injustice that is going on, despite the kinds of... Um, brokenness and disease and sickness that is happening in our world, one day the Lord will righteously and truly and purely set it all correct. He will set it all right. And yet the fact that we are longing to be among those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, you and I as followers of Jesus cannot sit back and say, okay, one day, God will take care of it. No, we know that that God will properly judge where judgments need to be made. That is not our job. But our job as followers of the Lamb is to do the same thing for mankind and to fight the same kinds of injustices that Jesus fought and to care for the same kinds of people that Jesus cared for. Why? Because that life is, is the life that was vindicated by the resurrection. That kind of life is the kind of life that is reminiscent of the way that Jesus lived. That kind of life is the kind of life that will be shown to be a true follower of Jesus on the final day. And so our calling as Christians is pretty intense It's intense from the perspective that we are saved by grace. We are saved by his deed, not by our own deed. And yet we live out the reality that he has put forth his own actions and his own efforts. But he has given us his spirit so that we can actually follow him. So that we can actually live out that same life that he lived That is precisely why he's given us his spirit. And so you and I long for the day when the Lord will put everything right. But because of Jesus's resurrection, the fact that it has already happened, we don't any longer look forward and think, okay, one day it'll all be better. Now, what we say is Jesus has already started in motion this reality. And we've seen this already. Revelation 20 is very similar to Revelation 12. Because of Jesus's resurrection, Satan, there is no longer any place found for him, right? It's not just that there's no place found for the earth and the heaven here when the Lord comes forward, but because of Jesus's resurrection, there's no longer any place for Satan in heaven. And so he, the great red dragon, is thrown down, He's cast down to the earth and his angels are cast down with him. He knows that he has been defeated. And so he goes on a rampage trying to destroy the lives of as many people as he can before he is finally put to death. That's the image that John's now describing. So for Christians, they absolutely know that they're going to be opposed by the enemy. We absolutely know that his time is short, but you and I as followers of Jesus live out now our understanding of righteousness and justice based upon the fact that Jesus's resurrection has already happened. What do I mean? I mean this. If Jesus was the one person on earth who was raised and who was vindicated because of his humility, because of his life, then for you and I to hope for a future resurrection— is to embody and is seek to be transformed into the same kind of person that Jesus was. That's the idea. It's that the end, the final judgment, was brought into the middle, and it's forever changed the way we live. And so for Christians today, we live in such a way, we put our hope in such a way that God is going to bring about final justice. We, allow, we leave that to Him. But we do the same things Jesus did. And and it's not to say that the Christians don't fight for justice. They absolutely do. Why do we think Jesus was killed by the Romans and by the religious leaders? It wasn't because he walked around saying, one day, guys, God will take care of it all. No, Jesus came as God in the flesh. Jesus came as God in the flesh and the way he acted and the way he lived is what made the religious leaders so angry. And John has been doing this throughout revelation, but that is, is that the lamb and the one seated on the throne are always found together. And John doesn't take the time to try to distinguish between the two, which one is acting. Is it the one on the throne or is it the lamb? And, And I know based on my own ways of, of reading Revelation growing up, I would be okay with seeing the lamb in certain scenes or certain sections of Revelation, but it's this, it's this fiery one seated on the throne who, who is going to be aggressive toward the enemies of God. And based upon the way Revelation is written, it is absolutely necessary that we keep the lamb and the one seated on the throne together. And again, Eugene Boring, it's excellent. It's very short, but here's what he says. The lamb is never an independent figure, but always lamb as representative of God. God is never a figure defined apart from Christ, but always God who defines himself by Christ. He's exactly right. And so this judgment that is happening is the same kind of judgment that has already happened, only it is being completed here. We know from Revelation 12 that Satan was judged. Jesus says in John 12, the ruler of this world is being cast out. We know that. How is it going to happen? It's going to happen because Jesus, the purely true righteous one will defeat sin and death at its own game. Death will transgress death and sin by putting to death someone that it has no claim on. And the moment that happens and God comes in on the resurrection and says, you can't do that. Death in that moment has been undone it has lost its power. And this is why Paul will quote in first Corinthians 15. He'll quote from Isaiah chapter 25, where O death is your victory. Where O death is your sting. What has happened here? Death has been put to death in the resurrection of Jesus. And here in revelation 20, John is symbolically portraying that reality for us by showing us a location where death and the beast and the false prophet and Hades and Satan will be cast to be tormented forever and ever. The same kind of torment that they created on this earth by creating havoc and injustice and cruelty and death and suffering for human beings, their fate now will be the same forever and ever that is hopeful for any person in this world who has been wrongfully treated abused um neglected rejected hurt um i i wish i could go on with more descriptors but i, I that's all i can think of at the moment He's going to right every wrong. He's got them. He's got you. The Lord knows those who are His. He's written your name there. He knows the struggle. He knows the hurt. He knows the fight. He knows who you truly are and wants you to trust him and to begin to live in to who you actually are, bringing his presence more and more to bear in your life. It's a hopeful message. It's a hopeful opportunity. The final judgment will one day happen in preparation for a new heaven and a new earth and a new people who are united to their God forever and ever And that is what we'll have a chance to look at over the next several weeks in the podcast. Beautiful images. And I will show you several things that you may have never seen before and probably not focus in on some of the things that you think you might know, not because I'm particularly clever, but because this, these are the final two chapters in the entire Bible. And as such, they tend to wrap up things we haven't seen for quite some time. So That's all I've got for you for this week on the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Thank you for uh, several of you uh, left a um, a rating over the last uh, few weeks. I really appreciate that. Um, If you could continue to do that, listeners, if you've not yet done so, leave me a rating or a review or, or both, if you would, on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these on. You can reach me by email if you have a question or a comment. I've been having several conversations this week with some of you, and that's a lot of fun. You can find me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much for continuing to tune in. Recommend an episode to a friend um, if you found one that's been particularly helpful. And I will be back next week with a dive into chapter 21. Until then, have a great week.